Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to the very first episode of A Hacker in a Fed. Welcome to the very first episode of Hacker in the Fed. Wow. Hector, how's it going? I'm pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing good. But before we begin, introductions are due. I'm Chris Tarbo, former FBI cyber agent, cybersecurity expert, and founding partner at Naxo. I met my friend and podcast co-host Hector Monsegur in a very unique way. I arrested him. Hector, why don't you introduce yourself? So as, uh, as Chris said, my name is Hector Monsegur. I am a director of research now. But at one point in my life, I was the bad guy. I'm a former black hat. What that really means is that at, you know, at some point in my life, I used to break into machines without permission. That breaking into machines is what I arrested Hector for. And then for the next eight months, we sat side by side fighting cybercrime together, uh, learning from each other. Mostly me learning from Hector. And I have to say that during that time frame, I learned not only that what I was doing was wrong, but I also got to find myself. And within that time frame, I also became very good friends with Chris, and we started to build a, a solid relationship. Now we are, you know, 11 years ahead, and here we are. We have a podcast. I'm super excited about that. Close friends and podcast co-hosts. Hector, how are you? Pretty busy. There's a lot of major breaches happening this week. So it's just a lot of reading documentation, reading incident response reports, you name it. It's a, it's a bad time for the victims, for sure. But it's an interesting time for the researchers and practitioners to kind of learn from those breaches. So I've been okay. Yeah, lots of interesting cybersecurity news uh, this week. Uh, lots of good stuff to read, um, which normally in a podcast episode, that's what we're going to cover. We're going to talk about cybersecurity in the news and how are you going to protect yourself and protect your family and protect your cybersecurity uh, footprint. Uh, but today we're going to talk about how Hector and I became friends and podcast hosts together um, and kind of go through that story. So Hector, you're ready to relive this adventure that we've been on for the last uh, uh, 10 years or so? Yeah, I think we're going into year number 11 now. Um, yeah, I'm definitely down. I'm excited. And it's the first time that you and I have been able to really talk to the general audience about this story and kind of, uh, you know, quell some of the um, the falsehoods that we've seen in the media and the public and in books and films that we've seen our story in. Right. Um, and it gives us an opportunity to kind of uh, share the reality of it. You know, it, it was it is an interesting story, and I think it's much more interesting than what you've probably read out there. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's great to hear it in our voice, not uh, in some other made-up media form or something like that, that uh, where they embellish or, or do it. But the stories don't need to be embellished. They're, they're great as they are. So. so, Hector, why don't you start off? Why don't you give a little background of uh, Sabu and uh, how Sabu came to be formed? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, well, there was a point in my life where I was, you know, I was basically at home. I was pretty sad and depressed because I, I had lost my family to the war on drugs, man. You know, they just all went to prison. Um, there was a time in the 90s in New York City, for those of you that remember those days in New York, um, Mayor Giuliani, he kind of went on a rampage. <laughs> and depending on what side you stand on, on the war on drugs, 
Um, you could say that he did a great job or he did a terrible job, but he would go through entire neighborhoods, you know, one at a time, like the Lower East Side, for example, where I was from. And he just had the cops sweep entire groups of people, hundreds of people into these um, these massive conspiracy cases. It was effective. Don't get me wrong. Um, I'm pretty sure that he's responsible for cleaning up a lot of those neighborhoods in those days. Um, but of course my family were involved in the drug game. They all went to prison, including my grandma. And I was, you know, in the streets for a couple months. Now, when my family was able to bail my grandma out and, uh, you know, I was home with her all day, every day. It was, I remember it was like the summer, the end of summer. And it was, it was a pretty down time. I'll be honest with you. I did get access to a computer. I was able to get online. Thanks to my cousin, Kenny, he did a great job at int- introducing me to something different. And, um, you know, I went online, I started watching some films on TV, I saw war games and I saw hackers and so on. And I was like, wow, I'm interested in this. I want to, I want to be a hacker, whatever that means. I had no idea what it meant, by the way, to be a hacker. And I read a manifesto called the Hacker's Manifesto or Conscious of a Hacker uh, by the mentor. And um, very similar to his fate, he knew he was going down by the FBI. This was back in the 80s. And so he kind of wrote this, uh, this write-up on, you know, his philosophy on hacking, what is a hacker. I read that and, you know, I went down the rabbit hole and I uh, eventually realized I needed to create a persona. That was Sabo. And thanks to 1990s, 2000s era of, you know, the hacking scene, especially uh, or specifically um, in relation to the cult of dead cow, I became introduced or I, be, I was introduced to hacktivism. And that's kind of how, what led me down the path of meeting you eventually, you know, 10 years after that, right? Yeah, so my upbringing was much different than yours, Hector. I did not grow up in New York City. I grew up in Virginia. I actually grew up next to the chief of police for the city I lived in. Um, so a lot of influence there when I'd be outside and he would come home with his gun and his badge and his car. And I, I thought it was pretty cool, but nobody in my family was in law enforcement. So, you know, I went to college. I went off from high school to college. Uh, you know, smart kid, got good grades and all that. I kind of got bit by the law enforcement bug. Uh, again, you know, growing up next to the chief of police and, uh, and, and that influence. And so at my local university, I, I joined some groups that were in, involved in law enforcement. It was called the uh, Campus Cadets. It was a, a way to be a like, safe way home. Um, for people late at night. But we also had a police radio and keys to all the buildings. So, you know, a lot of interaction with law enforcement. So that led me to stay at my university once I graduated, because again, I didn't want, now want, didn't want to go to medical school. So I, uh, I stayed and got a master's in computer science. Um, I did that because there was a local cop that I became friends with, Sid Hartman. Um, and Sid said, you know, this was 1998. Sid said, you know, computers are the wave of the future. They're going to be involved in every sort of crime. So I said, all right, then I'll stick around and I'll get a master's in computer science and I'll get some experience in law enforcement. And that's what I did. So I graduated. I got a gun, a badge, and a piece of paper. Um, and then I went to night school, uh, working my way through, learning my ones and zeros. At the end of that, I had uh, you know, good experience, a little bit of computer knowledge, and tried to put the two together. So I decided to put in my app for the FBI. And so then I found myself uh, in the FBI, going around the world, um, doing cybercrime. Um, I was on a fly team out of Quantico that was traveling like two weeks of it every three and got pretty busy. 
And so, but then I decided to go and head to New York City and become an FBI agent on what the, at the time was the premier cyber squad in all of the FBI. Um, CY2 did criminal cyber intrusions. And around that same time, the word hacktivism was everywhere in the news. There were hacking group, people hacking in and in, in trying to change the world through what the media labeled and uh, hacktivism. Um, unfortunately, in the world I was in, hacktivism was the same as someone breaking into a computer um, mm-hmm. to commit nefarious acts, which hacktivism is. It's a violation of uh, USC 181030, uh, ha- hacking into computer systems. Um, oh, yeah. So hacktivists is, uh, yeah, that's where we kind of met up. Um, around that time, um, there was a guy on the internet that was raising all hell, going by the name Sabu. Um, I've labeled it a number, number of times as the Kaiser Sose of hacking, um, kind of the guy we were looking at for. So let me ask you, why Sabu? And what other names did you uh, go through before you uh, landed on Sabu? Well, that's funny. That's, that's a great question. <laughs> well, when I was a baby, I've always been a big boy. Um, even when I was born, I was close to 10 pounds. My family originally used to call me Buddha, you know, like the like the Tibetan or Chinese Buddha. Um, or which, whichever one is the, the you know, the, the fat little one that you rub the belly, right? Sure. So when I, when I first got online, um, my pseudonym was like Buddha13. It's funny. I, I remember getting, getting online at, when I was 12 years old. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put 13 because maybe I could lie about my age, you know, add a year to it, right? <laughs> um, but I found another hacker at the time called Buddha as well. And we both agreed to change our names. He became Shot. So if, if Shot, you ever listen to this, you know, shout out to you. And then I became Sabu. Now, where I got Sabu from was I was really big into wrestling. And back in those days, I'm not sure you remember, Chris, we had like an East Coast. It was like Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York. Maybe some other states, but they used to be, um, you know, wrestling uh, organization called ECW or Extreme Championship Wrestling. It was sure, very specific I, to the East. Yeah, sure, I yeah. know ECW absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So ECW was very specific to like the East Coast, and they would come on at two in the morning on like the MSG channel for me. I'm not sure what it was for you. And um, there was a guy named Sabu, and he was absolutely ridiculous and absurd. Um, and he would like jump off of buildings and stuff. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And I was like, well, I think my personality, or rather my persona, should probably be a reflection of this guy's, you know, hardcore, um, you know, whatever it is. Um, so I kind of ran with it. I went with Sabu and, you know, kept it up. It's suicidal, homicidal, genocidal. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sabu. That's interesting that you want... You wanted a different persona online. You wanted to match a, another guy who used a fake name and sort of a fake persona. Um, I'm sure the Sabu has a, a real name. I have no idea what it is. Do you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I know his name. Um, something Brunk or Brunt. Oh. Uh, he has like a normal name. It's like Richard or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a. Is uh, he still alive? Yeah, yeah, he's still alive. He's still. You ever he's meet still him? doing his thing. I would love to meet him. Oh, we got to make that happen. I remember one day he was on Twitter and he was kind of pissed off that someone had, the, it was, they were using the name Sabu. And he made a comment on Twitter. It was like many years ago. And I wanted to hit him up like, dude, that's me. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, I'm, now I know what we do all evening is try to see if we can book an event with him. If we can get a picture. 
All right, so that's how Sabu was born. You saw wrestling and you wanted to bring it in. So bring me from Sabu to how you got involved in it with Anonymous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, going back to Sabu, his actual real name is Terry Brunk. I remember I remember now. Um, okay, so how did Sabu join up forces or join forces or participate in Anonymous? I'll be honest with you. This is something I've mentioned before maybe once. Um, I don't think folks really paid attention at all. But the reality is, is that the hacking scene of like the 90s, early 2000s, uh, there was a lot of hacking of other hackers. That was kind of the thing. There were a lot of zero days in those days. Um, and so if you were not trading zero day exploits or finding them or developing them yourself, um, then what you want to do is, you know, compromise other hackers that, you know, they had their own toolkits. You know, this is like the time before Metasploit where you would get a packaged platform console application that had a bunch of modules you would have essentially your own toolkit within you and your group and you guys would have your own set of exploits and almost every group had this i i had my own um set of exploits with my own team back in those days they were called pure elite and then after pure elite i, I joined forces with uh pantera who was a canadian hacker from hackwiser so i spent some time with those guys for a little bit um but for the most part i was a loner I looked at Anonymous as a potential, um, you know, pot of gold, right? Um, you you got to remember that by the time Anonymous came into fruition or came into existence um, and they started hacking things, quote unquote, hacking things, 10 odd plus years had passed since I, I got involved with hacktivism. My first hacktivist operation was in 2000 against the Chinese government. It was very close to my, my, my first major official hacktivist operation, which was against the government of Puerto Rico and the United States Navy. But that whole time I was a loner. I had built my career as a systems administrator. I spent a lot of time with Unix. I was very hardcore into Unix, and, and especially here in New York City in the scene. But, you know, 2010, my grandmother passed away. And that lady was like, you know, my everything. You know, when she passed away... Um, you know, it just so happens I became a false parent literally at the same time. And, um, you know, I was going through a lot of emotional changes and uh, it, it was a very difficult time for me. So the difference is, right, if you're a single man by yourself, you would probably shut yourself down or go see go see a therapist or whatever. You, you would you would deal with the problems however you dealt with it. My 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 dealing with problems is shutting myself down for a while. OK, but at that point, 2010, I had the two little girls with me. You know, I was a foster parent and, and I couldn't, you can't just shut down when you have kids as a responsibility. So I kind of needed my alter ego back, my persona. And I brought Sabu back from kind of like that semi-retirement. And I looked at Anonymous, they were doing some big things in the news. And I said, okay, well, maybe I'll have some fun compromising these guys and see what kind of exploits they have. Uh, the joke's on me though, because when I got involved with Anonymous, there were maybe, maybe at most two actual hackers. And one was Kayla, you know, uh, Ryan Aykroyd, a good friend of mine. Um, and the other one was probably, you know, a, a, you know, one of the guys from like Brazil or Slovenia, or, sorry, Slovakia, or who knows where. I forgot where, where they came from. So with that being said, I started hacking with Anonymous. I, I grouped up with uh, Kayla and uh, I was recruited by, you know, some dork that asked me questions about NMAP and SQL injections. And he had put together a group of people. And um, they all had different skill sets, okay? Now, the reason why I say the joke's on me is because by the time I joined up with Anonymous, 
it was already compromised by every special agents with internet access from here to Italy. I remember the Italians had a, they had their own cyber police within Anonymous. Uh, the Netherlands had their own special agents within Anonymous. Um, so yeah, so by the time I joined up, I, I, I was already compromised. Everybody was compromised. And in the beginning of the Anonops IRC network, there was very little obfuscation and operational personal security going on. So um, it kind of makes sense why most of us went down anyway. <laughs> and I, I'll be honest with you, Chris, uh, and I may be jumping the gun here a little bit, but I didn't care. I think that I needed something. I needed a reality check. And uh, thankfully, you know, that was when you knocked on my door. Yeah, we're not quite there. So you were jumping the gun a tad. But so I'm sitting in the FBI. I'm on CY2. I'm one of the new agents on there. And we're working on our cases. And again, you know, we have this anonymous crew that's going around um, doing any, anything and anything they want to. And then forms a, a group that comes out of anonymous. They call themselves LulzSec or laughing at your security. Um, and then they start hacking into everything. They're in the news every single day. This is a, a hacking crew that does not care what what they're doing. They want the media attention. They're taking cryptocurrencies as uh, um, people can donate to them. Um, people can make suggestions to them. They really started going crazy. And then they started hacking into uh, an FBI site, uh, InfraGuard, um, which is uh, an affiliate of the FBI. So it really raises the attention internally. And so, you know, bosses start talking about this sort of thing, um, kind of putting pressure, you know, we need to get some, do something about this. You know, field offices all around the country are, are starting to really go pay attention to this LulzSec, this, uh, this hacking crew online. Around that same time, I'm given a, a lead by my boss. And the way that works is, uh, you know, each squad has a supervisor. Uh, leads come into that, that squad and uh, the supervisor assigns it, you know, who would be good and makes a decision and who would be good for it, who can do it. Um, I got a lead that a local um, hacker, which I'm not going to name, um, is, uh, was hacking into AOL. And we knew he's local to New York. And so my assignment was to go out in there and find him and ask him what the hell he's doing. So in the FBI, you always take someone else with you. You never go cover leads yourself. Um, one of the reasons for that is it's a code called uh, 18 USC uh, 1001, where it's illegal to lie to an FBI agent. Um, so you would bring another FBI agent. So if they lie to you, you have a witness for for the crime. So you're the victim. Um, and perpetrator, and then the the other the other witness. So, anyways, Olivia Olson, a uh, great agent. I think she's a supervisor in LA, out in LA now. She's she's a, a really really good agent. Her and I headed out, and we heard them. So it was in Staten Island, so we headed out that way. We drove around and we tried all the different places where we had addresses for his dad or his mom, um, all over town, knocking on doors, and they didn't know who the hell we were talking about. We finally showed up at his grandmother's house, which is in was kind of an a, a known um, rough part of Staten Island. Um, didn't expect it. We had a, had a long day. Didn't expect any answers. Knocked on the door, no answer. Finally, a woman sticks her head out the upstairs window and says, "Who you know? Who the hell are you? What are you?" We show him the badges and we talk and we say we're looking for so and so. And she says, "I don't know where he is." And I said, okay, well, I'm just going to leave this business card in the mailbox. And if, if if you find him or see him, tell him I'm looking for him. Give me a call. Go back to the office. 
take care of everything that had home. And later that night, about nine o'clock or so, I got a call from an unknown number on my FBI cell phone. And I answered it and it, it was the guy I was looking for. I said, you know, this, I'd like to talk to you and, and see what's going on. And he says, okay, I'll meet you tomorrow at uh, the McDonald's across the street from the FBI in, in Manhattan. So, okay. So uh, Olivia Olson and I and uh, another agent named Jordan Lloyd, we went over uh, and there and behold, this guy shows up and he sits there um, and he starts talking and going through and he's, he's telling lies and half truths. And that's kind of why I knew I, I, I knew he was a criminal. And, and at one point he even admits to a three or four different felonies. I said, let's just keep, let him keep talking. And maybe we'll see what happens. Um, but eventually he says, he says what I was looking for. He said, you know, I can give you Sabu. Now, like I said before, Sabu at that time was the Kaiser Sose of hacking. He was the guy everybody was looking for. He was the one the bosses were putting pressure on. Um, you know, he was the leader of Lulsex, the leader for what we saw at the time, the leader of Anonymous, the guy with all the hacking power. And so my this guy said exactly what we were looking for, um, you know, Sabu. Um, he said he knew Sabu in real life, and we would see, you know, let's see what we can do. So we send him off, we go back and brief the bosses and we're like, now we have a plan. Let's, uh, let's use this guy to lure out Sabu and make an arrest. Let's send him into a bar. Let's wire him up. We'll wire up the bar. We'll have agents in there. We'll see what we can do. But because this guy who lived in New York city knew or said he knew my, he said he knew who Sabu was. We said, let's go back in history too. Let's, so make your plan for the bar and luring out Sabu. But let's also look at all the old hacks of Lulsec and see what we can find. What we can find that leads us back to New York City. What's the connection? You know, needle in the haystack. So we go through all the logs and there's this one hack into Fox, uh, Fox News or it was a television show. No, it was a television. It wasn't Fox News. It was a television show on Fox and tens of millions of lines all except for all of them lined up and everything good, except for this one IP address. Um, and a subpoena was sent out and it came back to Hector Monsegor of New York, New York. Um, so that was our lead, our investigative lead when we started looking into maybe there was a connection between Sabu and Hector Monsegor. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny how life works. It's a small world. Uh, and by the way, uh, for the audience, I, I didn't know who that guy was. Like, I had no personal relationship with him. Um, he was kind of like what you would call like a groupie in that uh, in that culture and that scene. But he was right, though. I was, he was like a City. bacterial yeah. leech on, on on that group. Yeah, no, absolutely. He was trying to get some internet clout. That was a thing still back in those days. And uh, but he was right. I was from New York City, and that was enough to kind of lead the, the FBI into that one direction. And there was also people at the time like doxing me online, and they found little tidbits and. You know, the reality is I, I kind of I, I kind of expected the knock on the door, right? I didn't know exactly when that would be, but the day that it did happen, I'm telling you, man, you know, I, I'm not I'm not I'm no religious person by no means, but I did feel all sorts of feelings and premonitions. And <laughs> Your feelings were right because you had a covert FBI team following you around all day. So, you know, a group of people of agents that don't look like agents uh, were following you around. Um, and then that day, about six o'clock, um, someone who I guess we won't name, but uh, they know who they are, put your information or your docs online. And to be honest, then, you know, we didn't have a whole lot to go on, uh, but it scared the shit out of us that you would pack up and we'd never see Sabu again. 
because you know we figured you would follow online, and if they were dead on to the information we had, saying Sabu is this person, to be honest with you, I did not understand until you know long into our relationship that. People did that all the time, that that wasn't a big deal to, you know, get doxxed in real life. And then you just social engineer your way out of it and say it's not really you. Well, at that time, they, you know, the, I would say the people that were involved in that, you know, usually people that are not really hackers, they want to be part of the scene. They still, they, you know, those kind of people still exist. Like there was a big story recently with like Kiwi Farms. They got, you know, uh, kicked off of Cloudflare. And when you looked at that form, it was nothing but people like that that sat there all day, every day, looking for information on people and just like putting people's names out. And I never really understood it. Have I done doxing in the past? Yeah, there was at least one occasion where I did. Um, and I was just scare somebody off. But the reality is, is that I didn't expect the, the amount of people that hated my guts. Because uh, I, I admit my persona, I was a I was an asshole. OK, I get it. Sabu and Hector Monsig are com- two completely different people. Did Sabu have to be an asshole though to we- wield like power online? Did people have to be scared of you? Well, you got to understand that when I was quote unquote growing up, right, the guys that I looked up to um, were groups like L8. You know, those are the guys that created the original anti-sec movements, um, and many of them were very funny. But there's there's at least one guy I can't mention his name. It's a very inappropriate name. But that guy was super aggressive. And if I were to say that Sabu was a, a culmination of two, three things, maybe let's say Sabu the wrestler, right? And then maybe fiber optic because he was like that very smart guy in, in Masters of Deception. And I, I, you know, when I read the books and I learned the stories and I went online and started downloading all the old zines and finding old chat logs from IRC back in the 80s, you know, I started looking at him and he wasn't aggressive. He was pretty, pretty chill. Um, I liked him and I and I studied, you know, Unix because of that guy. But then this other guy from that original anti-sec movement or PHC, the Frackite Council or whatever, that guy was super aggressive. And I was like, maybe Sabu needs to be like that, you know? And at the same time, I'm getting my own personal internal frustrations out in the world. Because I, I was confused, right? And my grandmother passed away. I didn't know how to deal with it. So I created a, a very... I would say tactical in, in, in operation, but also aggressive in personality, persona. And that's what Sabu ended up being. So back to that day when you got doxxed and we got scared. So the team's outside your house. They know you're inside your house. They tell us you're up on the sixth floor and you haven't seen any movement for a while. Our boss, like I said, the uh, the squad supervisor, he's on vacation and shit just breaks bad. So we get our boss's boss and his boss online, give them the explanation, and they say, just go. We're going to go. We're going to get this guy. We're going to sit down and we're going to see if we can find out. So, I mean, we're in shorts and T-shirts and sneakers. Um, we do not look like FBI agents. Um, still the, the short cropped hair and the, uh, you know, the gun on the side, but outside of that, you know, uh, so we're race up to the lower East side. Um, there was very few agents still in the squad at six, like I said, six o'clock at night. Um, we get out and all we have is our, our turtle shells are called turtle shells there. It's a green bulletproof vest with big gold letters across the back FBI. I'm sure you've seen them on the news. Um, so again, shorts and t-shirts, uh, and sneakers and, and a turtle shell. 
um, the boss's boss, a guy named Dan, he stopped at the local NYPD and got us some ballistic shields uh, and a sledgehammer. I don't know why. I mean, we didn't have a search warrant. If you didn't open the door, it's not like we can knock it down. Uh, but we had it. And we arrived in the Lower East Side, and people thought it was kind of strange, all of us there. Somebody held the door for us at your building, so they, they got you uh, partly on that way. But then we had to make a decision. Are we going to take the stairs? Or are we going to take the elevator? Um, we had been trapped in an elevator before, and there's nothing more embarrassing than when, when the New York City Fire Department has to come and get a bunch of FBI agents out of an elevator. So up six floors, turtle shells and ballistic shields. Um, we get to the top, and uh, luckily you had a hallway that kind of turned around where we could kind of hide down the hall around the corner. And then I, we decided that uh, my partner and I, Milan, we, I went up and I would knock on your door. And that's when your door opened just a crack. And it's the first time I saw you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I found it weird that when, I, when you guys first knocked on the door, you said police. And that wasn't you, it was uh, your partner. And I was like, police? Why the hell are the police here? And yeah, I, I remember I, I walked onto the hallway and I closed the door behind me. Yep. And, uh, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have to face reality. And I, I knew that was going to happen, by the way, because I, uh, I felt that I crossed the line with InfraGuard for sure. There was an InfraGuard hack that happened like that same week or the week before. And I had a feeling that was going to stir a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, drama. So, you know, it, it was an interesting time. And I'll be honest with you, when you first knocked on the door and we started talking in the hallway, I remember the first thing that you guys said is, well, Something, 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 the IP goes to this address. I was like, yeah, well, I offer free internet to the entire building. They're like, no, 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 it's you. You know, and, and that was that was a fun one for me because you, you guys, um, you, you know, you, I'm looking at you guys. You guys, I, you, you're the first one I noticed. All bullshit aside, um, because you look so out of place. Like, like you had shorts on or something and you had like a, like a white, you had like a white tee or something. Then you had the bulletproof vest. Just a white t-shirt, an undershirt, a shorts, sneakers, and a, and a bulletproof vest. That's all I had. And I was like, this is not what I see on TV. When you see the FBI. <laughs> we were planning on doing something that night. It wasn't supposed to happen like that. Well, I'll tell you, man, it, it was interesting. And then. Um, but you definitely did try to talk your way out of it sitting out in your hallway. Yeah. You know, listen, you know, it's uh, I mean, I'm a social engineer at heart. So I still had to try at least something for a minute or two, you know. But then we asked you if we could go inside and you, and you let us go inside. What what crossed your mind? Did you think you had to let us inside? No, I. I I'll be honest with you. I, I'm I'm a realist, and I knew I was I was fucked, right? Yeah. I I knew I, that, that was my honest opinion. I knew I was fucked, and so I realized, and this is something no one's ever heard before. So this is going to be some zero day information, but I kind of had a, a mitigation plan. If you noticed, without going into details, we don't have to talk about it because I know there's some national security stuff. But when you guys came inside, and and you know, I gave you guys my laptop. No, that didn't, you're getting too ahead of yourself, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, well, whatever. The point is that once once, once we got to the point, right? I, I, I am going ahead of myself. But once we got to the point where we agreed, fuck it, let's, let's kind of talk. Um, and there was a discussion about, you know, um, it may not even been there. It may have been back in the office. But it was a discussion about, like, you know, hey, by the way, I have this thing. Right? There was a thing on that computer. Yeah. But there was nothing else in that computer. Well, that thing was pretty big, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, th- that was that was my mitigation plan, right? But yeah. I figured I've I've learned enough about the FBI that they're willing to work with you if you're not an asshole and you're not like a pedophile or, or like a terrorist. They're willing to work with you. Yeah, I will say that the you know I set up my initial opinion of you 
you know, a little bit trying to find you. But then when you were invited us into your house and we sat at your kitchen table to have a, a discussion, you stepped up and you said, let's sit down and let's discuss it. Now, I will say on my way over to your kitchen table, I noticed that a laptop a charger was on the floor, but there was no laptop to be found. Uh, and eventually when we got to the conversation, I said, where's the computer? You said, there's no computer here. And a, <laughs> a blinking Verizon, the Wi-Fi connection, and a laptop computer in the middle of your family room floor. So uh, I, a little bit of lies, but, uh, but I, again, I appreciated sitting, you know, coming into your home. You invited me into your home, sitting at your kitchen kitchen table and we talk like men oh yeah and i think that was my approach for the rest of the way oh yeah well i mean that's that's kind of what i mean that, that was listen when you when when you face a point where like you know you've crossed the point of no return you're gonna have to just deal with it you're gonna have to suck it up i messed up i knew exactly what i was doing i messed up and you know this is why i had that thing you know ready and available but not only that um the uh the reality is that at that moment, I was still a foster parent. Um, and I was thinking about the girls. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to have to eat this and deal with it. And there's one thing that people don't realize, and I wish that more law, law enforcement, if I, and I'm hoping there's any cops listening to this. I hope they take, take a note here. And, uh, and I'm sure they know this stuff already. This is, not, this is not new. But because you spoke to me like a man and we had mutual respect for each other, we were able to kind of figure the, the situation out. Um, and the one thing I always tell people is that, you know, the reason why Chris and I are friends is because not only was Chris real with me and, you know, he, he also kept his word. Um, that goes a long way. And I'm sure law enforcement, you know, did more of that. They would have uh, much better um, relationships with the community. And, and I mean, look, every situation is different in our, in our situation, at least in mine. Um, you and I figured that shit out and, you know, I had a reality check and I knew that, you know, I had to do the right thing. As a cop, you can be an asshole. It's real easy to be an asshole. You've got authority, you've got a gun, you've got backup, you've got friends there. Really hard to undo being an asshole. So you should never be an asshole unless you're provoked to have to be an asshole. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, law enforcement goes quick, too quick to, to, to be mean. Uh, you can't undo it. And so you showed that respect. And I, I think, you know, in my position, I, that was the only thing I could do back is to have to show that show that same respect. That's what that's what you responded to. That's how you your personality worked out. So that's what I responded back to. And so it, it worked out. So so we sat there for about two hours. Uh, again, we finally got the laptop talked about. What'd you do with the laptop? When, we, when, when I knocked on your door, before the time you before you answered it and before I went inside, there was only a few seconds. What'd you do with that laptop? Okay. So that's a great question. So I am, again, I'm going to tell you guys something that you, that you may, you may not know. I think, you know, cause I think I've told you this before. So basically he was, this was going to happen. I knew the knock was going to come. I knew that I had something I could work with, but I wasn't hundred percent sure. So the idea was, um, you know, as soon as like, let's say you guys raided me or something, that laptop was going right out the window. It was going to smash into pieces, and the hard drive would probably be destroyed from all the shock from the, from the drop. But it required a second person. And, you know, at the time, as you remember, I was taking care of my brother. He's mentally, you know, has mental issues. I did not want to involve my little brother in that and get him locked up, too. Yeah. So I aborted that mission. <laughs> I said, you know what? Um, yeah, I just you know, I'll, I'll 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 play with them a little bit and let them know there's no laptop here and kind of see where they at. Um, there was something that you did show me that immediately changed my perspective. 
right? And I realized, okay, let's let's just deal with this situation as is. And this was around the time that you and I sat down on the table. And I'm not sure if we want to get into that, but it's basically the Facebook messages, right? Yeah. Well, for whatever reason, <laughs> Facebook decided to keep my data re- in retention. And the reason why I bring this up is because I deleted my Facebook account. Like I went through all the steps and I, I, you know, I deleted and I pressed buttons. I did everything I had to do. But my old Facebook had some real like stupid messages. And once I saw that, I was like, okay, cool. I know where I stand now. And let's just face this. Funny story that on that laptop, just to go back to that real quick. After your arrest became public and all that, we're talking a year later or so, we actually got calls from museums that wanted that laptop to go into a museum, um, which I, th- I thought would be interesting. But uh, <laughs> the FBI didn't allow it because uh, it was, it was you know, it's weird. Did, did you give it up? Um, is it still your property and all that? So they just kind of uh, dropped it after a while. But pretty interesting that they wanted your laptop for a, for a, a, hacker, a hacking section of a museum. Big museum in DC. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, they they opted to use someone else's laptop in return. Well, they use um, they got two laptops. One laptop. Oh, the, one in DC has um, what's that guy's name? The Jester. There you go. They have his laptop. Yeah. And then somewhere else, I think the Spy Museum in New York, they have someone else's laptop that wasn't even a hacker. I don't know why they have his laptop there. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Whatever you guys would have decided to do with the laptop, it doesn't matter. I would have went over there and took pictures with it. <laughs> the, fa- the stuff in Facebook that we had, did you think that we only had you on that and didn't have you connected to Sabu? Did you think you could wiggle out of the Sabu stuff? No, I, I, already, I already pinpointed all my failure points. Again, you got to remember, I, I didn't care at that point. I was really depressed. I knew that I had a coworker who was working for the government in New York City that immediately flipped the switch on me. That was one guy. And by the way, I saw that guy in a gas station and he just like ran, like he just like drove <laughs> off in his car. And I, I'm like, bro, I'm not going to risk going to prison for you. That's for sure. But yeah, so I had that one guy that he he wanted to be junior FBI agent himself and he figured he could do that. And then there was, uh, there was several other, uh, you know, pieces of the puzzle that kind of figured out there's something I didn't. There's a woman online by the name of Theodora Michaels. I must love to her. She took me to Broadway uh, a couple years ago. Uh, she's a wonderful lady. Big shout out to her and her husband. Um, that lady, she did her own external investigation. She's, she's an attorney. She's her, she did her own internal investigation and she did a whole bunch of research and she identified like 12 different points of failure for the Sabu personality. Um, some of them were people, some of them were uh, like the docs, for example. And I was impressed with that research, you know? The point is that Sabu was going down regardless. That's the point. Yeah, that's interesting. If you, I think to read that sometime. So anyways, we sat at your kitchen table, and I think it was about two hours. I mean, my boss's boss was out in the hallway and would uh, send in a messenger every once in a while to see where things were going and what was happening. And we're getting we're getting mid- midnight now here or so by the time we uh, finally get there. And, uh, you know, you come around and you finally say the words, I am Sabu. You know, it, it took a little bit um, to finally get to that, which I, I probably was tough to free on your end, right? Well, it was tough because not only am I thinking about myself, I'm thinking about the two girls. Yeah. And you and I had that conversation. Yeah, trust me, I was thinking about the two girls too. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not I have children. There's no way I was, yeah. you know, not thinking about, you know, the parent side of things, but, you know, again with my boss's boss and his boss out in the hallway, it's Yeah, know, it's hard. It's, it sort of gets out of control there. So, we we do our thing. I think we we got, got the girls into some uh, family member to come over, right, or something to to watch them. Yeah, we had a family member come over. Uh, the kids stood with them overnight, and then uh, you and I went off into the into the sunset. We headed downtown, and it, that was a strange. I for, I don't know who was driving, but you and I sat in the back seat, 
And while from the the ride from your house down to FBI, which is what at that time of night, you know, 10, 15 minutes at most, I got three phone calls from FBI agents all around the country saying I got the wrong guy. That's not the right guy. That's not Sabu. <laughs> That's how competitive it was. Like, you know, because like I said, the bosses wanted the the Lulsec stuff. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it's the guy. And they all wanted like why I thought it was. And I was like, well, he said it was him. So, you know, it kind of helps. Uh, it's kind of a clue. But again, they still didn't believe me. So it was a strange ride. Oh, yeah. And we get down to down to the FBI and we start talking. Um you start telling about some things. And like you said, you had some information in your laptop and, and, and you were part of a crew. Like we talked with the Lulsec, there were six guys. You guys had a contingency plan, right? If one of you guys wasn't went online for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. There was like, you know, operate operation Sabu and operation Kayla. Like we, we were not, we were not, um, I, I think there was a more better name. There was a better name rather. Um, but it was basically, Hey, if Sabu disappears, let's just wreak havoc and release everything in one shot. Because we did a lot of hacking. Like in, I would say that over a period of, like, let's say a month, 30 days or something, we, and when I say we, I'm talking about Ryan Ackroyd and I, because the other four couldn't hack themselves out of paper bags. But, you know, Ryan and I, we went on a rampage. We were compromising. And we followed a methodology. You know, that's that's what made us successful as adversary group. Um, we followed a methodology. We were compromising a ton of assets. And the point was, if Sabu disappears, if X disappears or Y disappears, then we would just wreck havoc and, and just release everything. That's that's kind of the idea. And how do we keep that ticking time bomb from going off? That was a great question. I think um, I, I, I'll be honest. I forgot the detail. Maybe it was something as simple as, "Hey, you know, I couldn't pay my my internet bill or something." I think it was, was something it on simple. Twitter or IRC. It was on Twitter. I posted something. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. I posted something like, "Hey, I'm 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 taking a break or some shit." I forgot exactly what it was. Yeah. The next day, these guys were all over your ass about things, like, but you 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 engineered them about you know you dealing with your grandma and stuff like that oh yeah so then we sat down and kind of explained now i will say this is sort of a different thing for the fbi you know the fbi has a history of you know arresting a a guy very low in the mob and then working his way up to the boss and all the way up to the head of the mafia Um, that's sort of how we did it but now um in our eyes at the time we sort of had we had again same same thing. Kaiser Soze of hacking. We had the great Sabu in our in our possession. So normally we would, you know, historically we would just say, "This is our guy. Look what we did. We stopped crime. We're the greatest thing ever." But we decided to sit down and kind of really understand what's going on in the hacking world. You know, what what better inside than you know having Sabu with us? Mm-hmm. And so. I think I sort of explained what it would look like and what it would be like. Was it different from that first night to what it really was? Or, or did you, was your experience, you know, would you have done it differently? In regards to making the decision I made, um, because of my circumstances, I, I, I more than likely would have made a decision regardless. Well, I didn't give you a choice, to be honest with you. I mean, really, you, you know, I, I was telling, explaining to you, you were facing 125 years, or you can sit here and work with the FBI. And tomorrow, tomorrow morning, before the girls even wake up, you'll be sitting back in your house. I mean, yeah. Anyone that, that blames you for making that decision is an asshole. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, some of these knuckleheads that's they, they still to this day make threats and or call me a, a, you know, racial term or whatever it is. And and you know, these guys in their minds, in their fantasy minds, uh, in in their in their mind of fantasies rather. Uh, if they were in my position, they would have fought you and got into a fist fight with you and like shot it out with you and like you know because they're they're stuck in that that bullshit anarchist mentality. The reality is, is that 
99.9 of them would fold. In fact, you know, when I went to MCC uh, several months later, and I know, I know I'm jumping the gun a little bit, I remember walking into MCC and there was literally writing on the wall. Somebody, they must have boofed a marker. We could talk about boofing some other time, but they, they must have boofed a marker into the prison and they wrote in a mess on the, on the wall. As soon as you walk in, it says something like, you know, 75% are snitching, 5% are about to, 5% wish they could, and the other 10 are like, whatever, they're, they're lifers, whatever, they're, they're done. It was some. It was something like that. I remember the math was percent went unaccounted for then, so be careful. Yeah, and five percent, whatever, <laughs> right? But it was it was something. It was something like that. I had a really had a reality check. I'm like, wow, you know, regardless of what people are saying online, most of them would have fold, they folded for free anyway. A lot of those people folded online without even have to, to even have to go to jail. People would fold for some media exposure. <laughs> yeah, no. So, you know, for me, my concern was my family. It was my girls. That's one. Two was my little brother. I didn't want my, my little brother to get caught up in this. Um, and then three, going back to those Facebook messages, what really put me in a hot, a hot seat with you guys with the Facebook messages wasn't about necessarily, well, some of it was hacking, but not really. It was some other stuff that I had a very stupid family member, you know, communicate back and forth with me. And as much as I really disliked that guy, <laughs> I didn't want you guys to bother him. You know, like go knock on his door and because he, I know he wasn't mentally right. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to just deal with this. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was interesting. That whole experience was interesting. Oh, so going back to your question directly, I did not, I expected something different. I'll be honest with you. I think that what you guys realized is that I didn't really know anybody, right? Like I didn't know these people's identities. And that's something we discussed literally on day one. What you guys seem more interested in was like methodology, why we do things, how we do things, how we are organized, how we're not organized, and of course, exploits and stuff like that. It seemed like the intelligence of it was more important to you than like who is Kayla, right? Yeah, 100%. 100% knowing what was going on in the hacking world, how victims were targeted, how, you know, groups came together, you know, the the ideas behind what really, I mean, we, we had the results. We had, you know, company ABC was hacked into. They came in this way. We, we knew that, but we want to know why that company was picked. Why that, you know, how is that exploit, you know, how is that exploit being used? And, you know, the intelligence that came out of that. The people, man, that was side, you know, that's for show and flash and be able to make the news. But the intelligence really is, is was the key to the whole thing. So it, it grew quickly for me. I mean, so we had that that night where we sat and we talked and, you know, the next day the lawyers got involved and we sat down and we offered what's called a proffer session where you tell us everything bad. Um, that you've ever done and we you, you end up having to plead guilty to it and you know we can't use it against you later on that was odd for me so i've arrested people before and when you arrest someone the next day they go or that day they go before a magistrate judge well because you had decided to work with us um, we had to go to the head of the courts uh, the, the the chief justice of sdny and uh, she allowed us to have you go before a magistrate judge in a non-public forum? Uh, never heard of it before. Never seen it. Didn't even know that could even happen. So your experience of being walked into a courtroom and then walked right back out by the FBI, uh, no handcuffs or anything, that is a very unique experience. Yeah. And I, and I just want to say, this is this is not related to what you just said at all, but a big shout out to uh, the chief judge. She was a, uh, a wonderful lady. I, I sent her a letter many years ago thanking her for for 
you know, seeing the, the situation as is and giving me an opportunity as a second chance at life. But yeah, so that that was that was weird to me too. Because I, again, I've never seen that in movies, right? Usually it's just like, you know, there's some sort of court, there's something that takes place. And, and, it, and even though it did, walking into that empty courtroom was very weird. <laughs> yeah, it was weird for me, dude. I it, like No one had ever heard about this. Nobody I worked with had ever seen anything like this. So very, very strange situation. So... I mean, that was the start of the next eight months where you and I sat side by side. And, uh, you know, we lost count at one point. There was over 300 hacks that you had stopped into U.S. government uh, agencies or or entities, military and all that. Um, Thousands of hacks into companies where we tried to, you know, let them know what was happening without blowing the source. Um, The intelligence of how hacks happened, how crews came together. Um, you know, you did a lot of good. I, all that eight months of hard work that we spent together there every single day, and I put a lot of pressure. I mean, it was your job. You know, we we were together for eight nine hours a day. I take you home. Uh, you'd raise the girls and ha- have your main job there. I'd go back and have to do you know write all this up and, and go crazy with it. Um, you know, that's why at your sentencing. The, the same judge you just talked about, she thanked you for your service. I mean, you went from facing 125 years in prison to being thanked by the chief justice of one of the toughest court systems, uh, you know, in the country because of all the the hard work and effort you put in. I mean, um, you, you had a lot of major, you know, results, you, you know. You didn't promise anything in the beginning. You did say you didn't know anybody, and that was true. You didn't know anybody. Um, you just—I mean—you thought uh, Kayla was a 17-year-old girl. I, I truly believe you, you thought that. Turns out to be Ryan Aykroyd, uh, 34-year-old guy. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, you know, you, you, we worked hard. You, you you gave everything you had, and you you earned you know that that appreciation from the judge. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was um, it, it was it was definitely surreal. Because, I, you know, when, it's, when it came out to sentencing, my attorney, big shout out to Peggy. Peggy's off the hook. <laughs> and her speech was so wonderful, made me emotional, you know. And then as soon as the judge started speaking, I stood up and my, ju- my, my attorney was like, no, 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 sit down. And the judge was like, no, it's okay. He and, you know, I, I respect that he wants to stand up. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> but she's such a, I don't think people realize that when you're, facing the chief judge of the Southern District of New York, like you said, is one of the toughest districts in this country or court systems in this country. I was like, she's still going to throw the book at me because this lady is very strict. Did you think you're going to jail that day? Yeah. I thought I was going to do at least another five years or something. I'll be honest with you. That's, that's between us because again, it's not like I'm facing a little rinky dink judge. We're looking, we're talking about the, the judge of judges and um, you know, and I was, I was, I was like, wow, you know, I, I, I understand, I get it. So, um, yeah, it, it was definitely surreal that entire experience. And then, um, I remember the media circus outside as soon as I walked out, people like following me around to the car. It was very weird. Yeah, I, the, when you went into court, I didn't know if you're going to jail or not. I mean, the, no one told me. I mean, it really is just the judge knows. I mean, the, the lawyers don't know or anybody. So it, it scared the the shit out of me. All that time together, you know, I had watched. In my mind, you transformed from Sabu, the guy I was chasing down, to a, a, just a man that let me in his house and sat at his kitchen table and discussed, you know, a, a hard topic for for two grown men to discuss, you know, from from different sides. And then we spent eight months together, and that's when I got to know Hector Montsegur. 
Sabu was a, something we typed into on the computer. Um, but Hector Monsiger was the guy sitting next to me. So, you know, the evolution changed and, and I really liked Hector Monsiger. And so, um, you know, because of legal reasons and the, I was an FBI agent, you were, you know, going through the court system, you know, we couldn't really communicate too much. But after that day, when she let you, you know, she thanked you for your service and you walked out of the court, you know, I was really excited about our, our, our friendship that we started while we were working together in the FBI uh, was going to blossom. Uh, and so, you know, I don't remember who reached out to who first. I think maybe you reached out to me um, and we started talking and then this friendship grew. Um, and now, you know, you're one of my closest friends that, you know, which going back to that June night, it seems strange for me to say, but, you know, <laughs> we talk about personal things. Um, you know, you you know my family, you know, you know, I know your family. We 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 get together. We, you know, I've been in your home. And so now we have this podcast together. So I'm excited. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, I I never expected that. I'll be honest with you. Like, I definitely considered you a friend by the end of those eight months. And I, I'll be honest with you as well. I was also bummed, also bummed that we couldn't speak anymore. You know, I was like, damn, oh, that sucks. I had a friend for eight months and that's, that's it. It's over. But then I remember, like, once my case was done and once, like, you know, you left the FBI at some point, you retired. That's when we were able to really talk. And honestly, that was... One of the best things that happened to me because, you know, I don't think a lot of people, a lot of folks understand that regardless of what you think about me or how the case ended or whatever, I still did time and I still had to deal with the consequences that other prisoners have to deal with. I had supervised release and it was extremely hard for me to get a job or even get, you know, a foot in the door anywhere. And I was stressed out and I was dealing with that by myself. And I remember that when I was finally able to speak to you, like after everything, you know, you gave me a lot of inspiration and motivation and you always reminded me of, of my, my character and who I am as a man. Uh, it helped me a lot, Chris. Believe it or not, dude, like it, it, that helped me it keep me going. That's my point. Well, I mean, you do the same. I, I bounce ideas off you. You know, I formed this new company, Naxo, and, you know, you were my biggest cheerleader when I was thinking of the idea. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, you support in anything. I mean, you were the first one to say, you know, anything you need, I'll, I'll help you with it. Um, so yeah, you, again, you close friend, uh, and now podcast co-host. Oh yeah. Um, I think our vision for the podcast is that we're going to get on here once a week, uh, and give you new episodes every Thursday. Um, we're going to talk about cybersecurity. We're going to talk about cyber in the news. Uh, we're going to tell fun hacking stories. Uh, we'll tell stories where we've messed up good FBI stories, good hacking stories from Hector. He's always an encyclopedia of hacking. And then we're going to look for users' questions. Uh, people listening to the podcast can, you know, we'll have an email address or they can, or they can call in and they uh, can leave us questions and we'll answer your cybersecurity questions. Really looking forward to the, the next, uh, who knows how many years, but I definitely think years of making this podcast together uh, and just being friends. To be honest, that first uh, 10 minutes when uh, we sign on before we hit record, uh, that, that's the best time just to, to catch up and see what's going on with each other. Oh, yeah, 100%, man. I completely agree. And, um, you know, the one thing I'll say is that, you know, what I thought was cool about this project is that, you know, you and I could be ourselves, which, again, most people don't really know. What they know about you is from what they read in the newspapers. What they know about me is what they read in newspapers or read in newspapers. So it's going to be interesting, um, you know, uh, uh, a fly-in-the-wall scenario. And then we could also talk about, you know, the thing for me as a security practitioner and someone as an enthusiast, 
I've always wanted to be able to sit down with folks and just chat about, wow, did you hear about that latest act with X, Y, and Z? Uh, here's how it happens. How, what do you think about that? In terms of remediation, how to deal with that. And I know we're going to touch on that stuff. So we're going to nerd it out and we're going to have some fun stories. And I'm looking forward to that. Um, and I think every Thursday is a, is a solid, uh, solid release day for sure. Well, I think that's great. I think it's a good first episode of Hacker in the Fed. Um, we'll kick it over to our great producer, Phineas, and leave it for him. So, Hector, I look forward to talking about the latest news uh, in cyber and telling some fun stories next week. I will talk to you next week. All right. Cheers. Cheers.